Hey guys, welcome to the Columbia View Church podcast. We're excited to share God's word with you. If you'd like to get more connected here at Columbia View Church, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org. Our Sunday morning worship time is 10 a.m. We are meeting on site now and following the social distancing guidelines put forth by our state. And we love the opportunity to, to meet you in person and we hope that you are blessed by this word today. In St. Louis, Missouri, I actually ran my fastest time in the five mile. If you want to know, you can ask me later. And so at that race, we qualified. So we're at nationals. It's a five mile race. We're on the starting line. The team is pumped. We're excited. Boom, gun goes off. We take off. We're going to beautiful course. It's cold. Man, Ohio in early November. Mm. Yeah, why couldn't it be in Hawaii? They picked Ohio in November. Anyway, I'm not on that committee to make those decisions. So we're running and we're going, and I, I really wanted to win, and I had a shot at it. You look at the roster, you look at the times of your competitors, you do all the like calculative math in your head of what you have to do per mile to be able to win and all this stuff. And so I'd done all the calculated math, and I was like, there's a shot that if I really, really give it, give it, give it my all today, with God's help, this could actually happen. So we're running. I'm up in somewhere in, the, in, in, in top 20, and then I start picking people off one by one, passing them. So now we're mile two. We're mile three. Right around mile three and a half, four, this is the toughest part in the five-mile race. It's where runners start to fade and the elite start to advance. And it was in this moment, guys, I had this thought, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I'll go to the grave with this thought. I had the thought. I counted the guys ahead of me, and I decided I could probably get fifth place. If I just kind of settle where I'm at right now, I could probably get fifth place. And I started to do the math and thinking, yeah, I'm going to be nowhere near my PR last week, but fifth place is still All-American. And I mean, we did make it to nationals, right? I mean... Here we are. This is just kind of the fun part, I guess. And I remember making a decisive decision to just kind of settle. And I kind of kicked it into cruise mode and kind of settled in in fifth place. Mile four goes by, 1,000 meters to go. No one's passing me, but I'm not passing anybody else either. And I remember crossing the line. I was tired. I ran hard. But I settled. I didn't give it everything. And our team, we had a good time, and it was fun and all, and I still got All-American status. But the number one guy, the dude who went, won that day, was still 15 seconds slower than my PR the previous week. Yeah, that moment when the crowd is like, oh, let's all say it. Yeah, and I remember that night having dinner with the team and kind of in this bittersweet moment of, man, this was fun. We made it to nationals. But man, on a personal level, I really just settled for second best. It's not that I gave up, but I let up. It's not that I quit. It's that I just stopped caring. I didn't fail, but I didn't win either. You know, we've all had some of these experiences, I think, in our walk with God as well, where we've had a couple moments that were amazing encounters with God, some incredible victories, some incredible times of growth, but then sometimes in life, we just kind of settle. 
We think to ourselves, man, I've tried to lead someone to Jesus, but it's never really worked well. Those conversations got really awkward. So, you know, I guess someone else more professional in Christianity can do that. Or we've said things like, you know, God has already saved me from so much that I don't really think I can ask him for anything else. He's already been so good to me. Or we say things like, you know what, as long as God just meets my needs and I'm not like homeless or something, I'll be okay. Or even yet, we'll say things like, you know, as long as I make it to heaven, I'll be okay. And we often miss out on the life that God wants for us because we don't see ourselves the same way that God sees us. We've been in a series now called Soul Shift, and the whole thesis of this series has been making the shifts in our life, in our soul, towards Christian maturity. The reality that God actually has some metrics that we can extrapolate from Scripture that show us the type of lives He wants us to live. That the measures of maturity in Christianity isn't just the inputs, how much prayer I do, and how much I read the Bible, how much I go to church, how much I listen to the fish on the radio— inputs. It's not measured by those things, but rather Christian maturity is measured by the outputs, what my life is producing. And last week, we looked at the first shift from me to you, that Christian maturity is actually measured by a follower of Jesus whose life is becoming more and more oriented to thinking of others than self. And today, we're going to be looking at the second shift, which is from slave to child. And it's a shift in our identity. It's a shift in the way we view ourselves and the way we view our heavenly father from being his slave to being his child. You see, Jesus tells a parable in scripture about a guy who was settling for second best. And this parable, this story that Jesus tells comes out of Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll also be on the screen. Luke chapter 15 will be in verses 11 through 24. We'll work through it piece by piece. I'm going to make some comments as we go along. Verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, Hey, go ahead and give me my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed, and he divided his wealth between his sons. See, in this passage, Jesus is talking to religious people, people who've been in church, so to speak, for a long, long, long time. And they'd, in a lot of ways, settled for rules while Jesus offered relationship. And this younger son in the story basically tells his dad, hey, You can go ahead and kick the bucket whenever, man. I don't really care when, but I want my money now. It was massively insulting what he said. And you know, in a lot of ways, we can relate to this. Not that we told the old man to go kick the bucket, give me my money. No, no, no. But it's been painful. We've watched people we love settle for second best. That's what the father had to do here. My daughter, yesterday, my, my family, we wake up Saturday whenever we can sleep until because we have a two-year-old, and quite frankly, they are your alarm clock, and so uh, we made it to 7.30. Yeah. yeah, my wife is pretty jazzed about that. Um, young families, you get that. And so 7.30, we go downstairs, and we're kind of making some, some breakfast, and we love making pancakes on Saturday morning. Anybody else here like pancakes? Okay, all t- 
two of you. Awesome. Well, you're not invited to my house for breakfast, I guess. Anyway, so we got the, the pancake batter mixed up, and I got the skillet going, and we put, listen, in the Raina Barger household, we put blueberries in our pancakes. I don't know what you guys put in yours. Chocolate chips will do sometimes. So we got the blueberry pancake mix, and I'm throwing them on the skillet, and then Karis, she don't want to wait for the pancakes. You know what I'm saying? So what does she say? She says, me want that. And she points to the bowl of batter. You know where we're headed here. Don't worry, no eggs were used in the making of these pancakes. Thank you, um, grocery outlet brand, whatever they sell. So she, she, I pour a little bit in this cup and I'm kinda, I'm kinda dying inside. I'm like, dude, these pancakes are gonna be so good. They got blueberries, they're crisp, there's the butter on it. Like, oh, they're gonna be so good. But you want this, this batter? Are you serious? Uh-huh. Uh-huh, she says. All right. So I give her this little cup. She just takes her fingers, right? Just gobs of this batter, and it's all running down her, her chin. Um, she sleeps in dresses. I don't know if that's normal. That's what my daughter does. Pajamas are a joke. She goes to her wardrobe the night before. That one picks a dress and then puts it on. Last night, she, she, she um, slept in her swimsuit. <laughs> so she's eating these gobs of bisqui Bisquick and it's just like running and all, and I'm just like, oh, settling for a second. So funny story, right? Funny story. But we can scale this up to things. We have children, we have loved ones who have settled for second best. Whether it was a life of drugs or bad decisions or whatever, it's difficult and the thing is, if you notice the father, is he permitted it. He didn't just step in and say, no, 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 let's sit down, let's have a conversation about why this is a bad decision. No, he permitted it. And the story goes on. A few days later, his younger son packed up all his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Looked to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did this younger son choose the distant land over family? We know the character of the father by the end of the story, right? So we know that it couldn't have been he was some overbearing jerkish guy, right? Maybe the younger son was fed up with comparison, never measuring up to the older brother. We know what he's like. He liked following rules. Maybe he didn't like the family business. Or maybe it's he didn't see himself the same way his father had saw him. Maybe he measured his life based on all of the mistakes and the shortcomings and the shame and the guilt of life. And it became just too much to bear. And he decided, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to need something to be able to survive out there. So go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance, dad. See you later. I wonder. I wonder. The world likes to advertise freedom, complete freedom, no constraints, no overarching structures imposed on you. 
and yet it often delivers emptiness, aloneness, and slavery. I ran into uh, a kid that our church has invested in over the years, over at the park. We like to do park day on Friday. It's our Sabbath day, Park Lane Park. And, and this, this individual who we, we hadn't seen her in a long time, she says to me, dude, like, I don't have any friends. I asked her how school was going. I don't have any friends. There's this reality that the Lord or the, the world advertises freedom, but delivers emptiness, aloneness, slavery. Verse 17, the story goes on. When the younger son finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father, and here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, if you would, just take me on as a hired slave. While his father still sees him as a son, he's already settled as a slave. While his father in this moment, as he's in the deepest, darkest pit of his life, simply sees himself and views himself through the lens and the grid of guilt and shame of all the dumb things and stupid things he have done, his father still sees him as a son. Yet he's gonna settle as a slave. This is what unresolved guilt and shame does to us, doesn't it? It distorts the way we see ourselves and the way we see God. Listen to the language of what he said. I'm no longer worthy to even be his son. Now here's the deal. That's a half truth, isn't it? Just like all of us, we do not deserve to be God's children. We do not deserve the gift of salvation. We do not deserve the blessing of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. None of us deserve any of that. We read in Romans that we deserve death, which is true. And yet, that is only half the truth. The other half of the truth is the character of our Father. And that's what he was missing here in the equation, was the character of his Father. He said things like, in his head, probably, it's not in the text, but I'm going to read into it a bit. You know, Dad probably wouldn't even accept me back anyway. He lacked a confidence in his relationship with his dad. And so the story goes on, verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him, and he kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you see the other half to the truth? Listen to what his dad was filled with. Love and compassion it says. It's almost as though he'd been sitting there, and again, there's business to take care of around the home, so it's not like he's just, you know, waiting forever for his son to come, but there's a sense of he is looking. He's, whatever that travel route was into the homestead there, he was looking out, waiting for his son, and when he saw him filled with love and compassion, he ran out to him. 
Shifting from slave to child requires repentance. It requires a turning back home. It requires the admittance of, God, I have sinned against you. I have blown it royally. Shifting from slave to child is possible because of the character of our heavenly father. He's not a capricious God that may or may not accept us. No, when there is legit repentance, he immediately, filled with love and compassion, receives us home as his child. Check this out. Verse 22. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get the ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and go ahead and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. I love it here. The father cut him off as he's about to recite his script that he'd been probably practicing all the way walking home. Father, I sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. His father cuts him off. He doesn't even get that part in because his father's already accepted him. There was already the fruit of repentance and it was immediately received with favor. You see, shifting from slave to child, it causes a party in heaven. When someone decides, I need to come home to God, I need to come home and give him my life in deeper ways, or maybe for some of us here today, for the first time ever, I've been putting off my decision for Jesus for years now, when we finally make the shift to come home, Jesus, typified by this father here, immediately receives us as children. And we, in a lot of ways, because of our guilt and shame, think, man, if God would, if, if I could just kind of just, just kind of meander through this life and just slip into heaven and just kind of be, be not in the bad place, like, like that would be good enough. And it's settling for second best when God wants so much more for his children. Shifting from slave to child is a shift from death to life. This is one of the beauties of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that there was death in my life because of sin and now in Jesus there's life. It's a shift from lost to found, which speaks of relationship. I was once estranged from God, and he brought me in. There's three things I think this text teaches us about making this shift from slave to child, a shift in identity, how we view ourselves, how we view God. Number one, Jesus came to shift our identities from slave to child. In John's gospel, Chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, he puts it this way. Yet to all who did receive him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the God that we serve, ladies and gentlemen. He's a God that likes to give new identities, new names. 
all through the Old Testament, from Sarai to Sarah, you're going to be a new person. From Abram to Abraham, come after me, you're going to be a new person. From Jacob to Israel, I'm going to make you into a massive nation after my name. From Simon to Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. Saul to Paul. Man, it's all over scripture. God likes to give new identities. And the common denominator, what he wants to speak over us right now, in shifting from spiritual immaturity to maturity, is starting to view ourselves and viewing God as child and father. And this is hard for some of us. Because for some of us, when we think of heavenly father, we had a really bad example. We had a really bad example. That's true. I don't discredit that. But the flip side of that is, if that is the example of what a father is not, think of everything that is opposite of that. And that is your heavenly father. Filled with love and compassion. Receives you as his child. For some of us, when we blew it, our heavenly father beat us. Or I'm sorry, our earthly fathers beat us. They smacked us up. They verbally said stuff. Our heavenly father, when we've blown it, and we repent and we say, I'm sorry, God, he receives us. For some, this shift is difficult because it's so foreign from any earthly experience you've had. And yet this is the character of our heavenly father. He wants to shift our identities from slave to child. The way Jesus puts it elsewhere in John chapter 15, verse five, Jesus says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Do you hear the language there? Friends. God doesn't want you to simply settle as a slave. He wants you to shift to seeing yourself as his child. Point number two. Slaves view themselves through the lens of guilt and shame. The younger son was ready to settle as a slave because he couldn't see past his bad choices. He thought, maybe, maybe I can earn dad's love back by doing more good things. It was this merit-based system where perhaps if I got enough gold stars next to my name, maybe then dad would accept me back. Do you see how distorted his view of, of his dad and himself were? This is what unresolved guilt and shame do to us. It makes us view ourselves and God wrongly. Check out what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, contrasting two types of guilt. This is huge. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. You see, the reality is guilt and shame actually play an important role in our lives as Jesus followers. They become the impetus and the, really the dashboard indicator to say, woo, something's off here. But it's not to just lead you to despair, it's to lead you to repentance and growth. Raise your hand if you're perfect. Yeah, good, I'm glad none of y'all raised your hand. Raise your hand if you're aiming to please God with all of your life. We're on a journey, and each one of us is at a different place in the journey. That's why it's so dangerous in the church when we start to judge other people's progress and growth based on where we're at. 
because we're in totally different places. And so one of the questions I love to ask believers is, okay, you're a believer. I'll believe you on that. What is the Holy Spirit teaching you right now? What is God showing you right now? Or is he challenging you right now? Where do you sense growth taking place in your life? And the reason I think that question is so critical is because God has an agenda for each of us. And what matters is that we're in tune enough to hear what it is and we're following it. We're leaning into the change he wants to bring in our life. You see, worldly sorrow does the opposite. Worldly sorrow is where, where you feel bad, but then you don't do anything about it. You're just kind of like, well, yeah, I kind of have this attitude or I have that kind of that tendency in my life, but you know what? Yeah, I'm not as bad as most people, I guess. Worldly sorrow is feeling bad after already addressing it. Do you see the extremes? One is passive. One is, I know there's, there's, there's sin and garbage in my life that I need to deal with, but I don't really care about it. It's passive. The other is, sometimes we can become so introspective that stuff we've already repented and moved on from keeps bothering us. That's also not what God wants for his children. God uses guilt and shame to lead us to repentance, in the words of Paul, that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Listen, God as your heavenly father wants you as his children to make the shift from being constantly beat up and viewing your life and viewing him through the lens of guilt and shame. And he wants you to make the shift to here, point number three, viewing your life through the lenses of grace and forgiveness. Children, God's children, they view themselves, they view life, they view God through the lenses of grace and forgiveness. The father was filled with what? Love and compassion. He's waiting for us to come home, to embrace us. Paul got this and captured it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10. This is such a great balanced example of both seeing ourselves for as we are, we've fallen short, in light of the character of who God is, loving and compassionate. Check it out. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, I love the contrast statement, here it goes. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God that was with me. Paul made the shift and he no longer viewed his life through the lens of guilt and shame of what he was, what he repented from. He made the shift from slave to child to start viewing his life and who God is through the lens of God's grace and forgiveness. He didn't brush his sin under the rug. He repented of it and allowed God to change him. Paul made the shift towards spiritual and Christian maturity in seeing himself as God's child by viewing himself and viewing God through the lenses of grace and forgiveness. So let's try and get a little bit practical here. 
What are some practical ways that us today as followers of Jesus or for those who are becoming followers of Jesus to make the shift from slave to child? Number one, children come home. Children come home. Maybe you've been distant from God for whatever reason. And we can blame a lot of things and that's okay. It's the pandemic, it's financial hardship, it was a transition, I lost my job. Man, everybody who has a pulse had a disruption in 2020 into 2021. And unfortunately, that has rocked a lot of people's relationship with the Lord. They've become distant for whatever reason. Children come home. Children make the shift home and recognize, you know what? It's not because I'm special that God's gonna accept me, but it's because of his character that he is gracious and he is loving and he's filled with compassion. He's gonna accept me home. You see, God wants you home. God wants you to be in his family. God wants you part of his crew. We have to come home though. There has to be a reckoning moment where we say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to accept me. And the beauty is, is that he accepts you just as you are and invites you to become all of who he wants you to be. The second practical way to shift from slave to child is that children ask boldly. Children ask boldly. When you know your heavenly father and you know his character and you know what he's about and you know how generous he is, you can ask him boldly. Now here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean you get to go and say, God, give me a Corvette and he's gonna give you a Corvette. There's all sorts of scripture that can show us that there's actually a lot more that God cares about than trivial earthly possessions, right? So here's some things that I've been asking God for in my own life, boldly. God, help us lead some more people to Jesus in this next season. The reality is we have the gospel of Jesus, and if we really believe it, we believe it's the greatest hope for humanity. And even in post-Christian, post-modern Portland, there are people who, in light of getting sucked into what you might call the secular progressive ideology and movement and secularism and whatever, like there's people who are starting to recognize, wow, this thing that I bought into isn't really giving what it promised. There are so many people who are bankrupt spiritually, emotionally, relationally right now. And these are opportunities we have to offer an invitation to a better reality to offer a better vision for life, grounded in following Jesus. I'm asking God, God help me, help our church to catch this vision of the importance of reaching people for Jesus because the reality is that's what matters the most. I'm asking God help us baptize some new people this season. We had a young gentleman that came to the Lord, made a series of really bad choices and landed in jail. Ah, that's a bummer. But you know what? The story's not over yet, is it? The story's not over, church. God wants new people in his family and he's gonna use us to give them the invitation to come home. I've been asking God, God, help us to raise up the next generation of Christ followers. Because man, I got one living in my home. She is two years old right now. And I want you to know that our kids' ministry, they're killing it right now. 
Man, they're hitting a home run. They're doing such amazing work with our kids. They're partnering with families in spiritual formation efforts of passing faith on to the next generation. God, help us, help my wife and I to live such a real life before you that it makes it easy for our daughter to accept you. Because reality is, we do not outsource our children to the church. As parents, it is our responsibility to raise our children up. Give them the best shot at accepting Jesus. Give them the best environment to see the gospel lived out. There's moments where I have to apologize to my own daughter. Man, we got funny stories, don't we? Yeah, ask me later. And yet in that, I'm modeling what forgiveness looks like. God, help us raise up the next generation of Christ followers. This is a bold ask that I'm making God, help us individually and collectively unleash your presence in this city. God, help us to advance your kingdom through this church and other churches in our area. We have a really cool thing going where there's actually three different congregations that share this space. And yet in three unique ways, we are advancing a unique gospel presence in our neighborhood. God, help us do that even more, I'm asking God. God, help us build bridges to a hope-filled future for immigrants in our community. Let me tell you, man, Immigrant Connection PDX, our low-cost immigration legal service office, where we offer immigration services in the name of Jesus. Bro, the phone's blowing up, the emails are blowing up, the calendar's filling up. It's exciting. God, help us, not just with immigrants' statuses here on earth, but help us to introduce them to Jesus and help them make the shift for eternity and the flip side, help us to learn from them. There are so many godly immigrants in our city that we're meeting and we're helping and we're learning from them. God, help us to continue to do this more and more. So what have you been asking God? Now, I'd be lying if, 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 if I said this is what my prayer life is like every day. No, it's, it's up and down. It's like everybody's, right? And yet in general, these are the themes of the things that I'm asking God to do. Because as his child, as I know his heart and I know his generosity, I know he wants to give us good things. Amen? Amen. The last one, I'm gonna invite our worship team to come up and we're gonna respond in worship. Children wait confidently. Children wait confidently. There's some of you here who have been discouraged. You are faithful to Jesus. You're walking with Jesus. You're serving Jesus. You love Jesus. But you've been discouraged because maybe you've been asking some of these bold things, maybe even for years and decades, and you've not seen them happen yet. I'm not gonna pretend for even a second that I possess some special wisdom or something. I don't know the perfect will of God, but I know his heart. And I know that when you ask boldly for things that are in alignment with his heart as revealed through scripture, those prayers matter. And he is answering them in his perfect will, in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect timing. Sometimes we have to be patient. The Instapot microwave hot pocket culture that we live in often misaligns with Jesus's call to wait confidently. But do you see the difference? It's one thing to wait in discouragement. It's another thing to wait confidently. To say, God, I trust you. Help me 
live with sustained urgency. God, help me to trust your timing. I know you hear my prayers and they matter. Children wait confidently. Church, in this season, God is calling us to make this shift towards Christian maturity from viewing ourselves merely as God's slaves to viewing ourselves, our identity as his children. Hey, thanks for joining us. Our passion is to know and share God's heart, and we're so glad that we're able to do that with you today. If you'd like to visit us in person, please visit our website at www.columbiaview.org for directions. We'll see you next week.